This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. We have a lot to talk about this week, Richard, and I I thought we'd start with our newly confirmed Supreme Court Associate Justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who will assume Justice Breyer's seat uh, when he retires very, very soon. Now, for part of her career, soon to be, well, I guess, justice in waiting, Jackson was a public defender, which is experience I believe none of the sitting justices had prior to their tenure. It's a fact that has been discussed by senators and in the media and used both as an argument for and against her confirmation. I want to know from you, do you think that background will affect how she chooses to interpret cases? And do you think it's possible we might see movement, you know, different movement from the Supreme Court on issues such as maybe federal sentencing or qualified immunity that a, a public defender would have you know, had, a, had a different viewpoint on? Look, it's always a possibility that people are framed by what they did earlier. But if you want to figure out what the distribution on the current Supreme Court is with respect to this whole constellation of issues, uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor seem to be reasonably similar on them. They do it for very different reasons. I think that the Sotomayor stuff is heavily race-based, and I think that the Gorsuch stuff is heavily libertarian-based, which is the sense that you don't trust the police because the purpose of of a constitution is to reign in the government as well as to make sure that the government is able to reign in bad actors. So I think there is that spectrum, which means it's hard. The second thing is she wasn't a prosecutor yesterday. It was before a fairly long career, pretty distinguished career, you know, with respect to the district court and a very short career on the other court, that is the court of appeal. And what happens is the further you get from those particular stimuli, uh, the more other influences start to take over. You're going to have conversations with your colleagues. There's going to be a constant barrage of criticisms and compliments that come from the public area. Are there going to be new events that may well galvanize you? So whatever people's views were on police brutality and police control that existed in 2015, by the time you go through Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin, just about everybody is going to have a somewhat different view on that. If you go back to 2020, all of a sudden there were lots of people in favor of defunding funding the police. By the time you get to 2022, even the Democrats are running from that particular platform uh, because the spike in crime waves have taken you in the opposite direction. So I think with all of this stuff, I put very little weight on that. And indeed, I do this generally with respect to all things that happen to Supreme Court justices. There are a few people who have very deep and abiding views that have been systematically expressed, and they may be counted on in some cases to be a bit more uh, constant in their views. But there are also counterexamples. Justice Felix Frankfurter in 1930, with a man named Nathaniel Green, wrote a book called The Labor Injunction. And the basic thesis of this is that the courts issuing injunctions against labor unions had performed a massive kind of disservice. And in all of his writing in the 1920s, he was very strongly in favor of the National Labor Relations Act. By 1954, 1955, I'm not so sure I liked secondary boycotts, he said, or various kinds of strikes. And he had switched his sort of position. This can happen to lots of other people. So I don't think the 
prediction is extremely strong. I do think, at least with respect to conservative judges, there has been a consistent trend, which is over time they become somewhat more liberal than they had previously been. I think it's less common to see the movement going in the opposite direction. And I expect that that might well continue. But in order to move left, you have to start right. Then I think what you would say is she starts somewhere on the left. If you ask me to predict based on very little where she stands, I think she's probably going to be closest to a mentor, which is Stephen Breyer, which would mean that she would probably be somewhat on the more conservative side of the liberal bloc. So if I had to line them up, I'd say I think Sotomayor would be farther to the left than just about anybody else. I think that uh, Jackson would be somewhat to the left of Kagan, who will be um, right. Um, she would be somewhat left of Kagan, who's somewhat to the left of, I guess, of Roberts. The median judge is now Judge Kavanaugh, as best I can tell. Well, that doesn't speak a huge change in the composition of the court. And so I expect that not only is she part of a block of three, but I don't regard her as a particularly virulent, powerful, decisive voice who has this restless impatience. I don't expect her to make the kind of outbursts that we've seen from time to time from Sonia Sotomayor. So I think what happens happens is that this appointment is an appointment. Uh, it may be regarded as historic for the racial and symbolic issues, but in terms of the day-to-day business of the United States Supreme Court, I think it will move things a little bit further to the left, but I don't think it will have a profound effect. Well, speaking of the Supreme Court, you wrote about a case this week near and dear to my heart. It's called National Pork Producers Council versus Ross, as it deals with California, where I live, and pork, which is delicious. And for the uninitiated, this is the California proposition passed in 2018 that required all pork sold in the state to adhere to California's standards of animal health and safety. But California, it's a big state, doesn't make a lot of doesn't doesn't raise a lot of pork, but it does consume a lot. And so the result was pork uh, grow, uh, producers nationwide changed their practices, and in the process raised prices for pork around the country. Uh, Richard, correct me if I'm wrong. The issue at hand here, right, is is if California overstepped its bounds uh, by, in a sense, regulating interstate commerce, a power reserved to, to the Congress. But also, so tell us about what could go wrong there. And also, who, can, who could really blame them considering how ridiculous the, the Commerce Clause has been interpreted by the Supreme Court for the last few decades? Well, I mean, there are two different issues. Let's start from the beginning. First of all, I'm not exactly sure whether or not this regulation has been put into force, given the fact that the litigation is still going on, and that's before the Supreme Court. I think it's more perspective than real. Uh, I don't recall seeing anything in the briefs which started to talk about anything other than predictions of outputs on the one hand and price on the other. But this is a kind of a nice illustration of the point that I made before. I find it utterly difficult to predict which way any of the nine Supreme Court justices will go on this particular question based upon a general left-right orientation. As you mentioned, there are many ridiculous things associated with the Commerce Clause, but most of the things that are associated with it that I think are very difficult are situations in which the Congress has direct power and can pretty much do anything that it wants with respect to that power, including massive disruption of competitive enterprises. 
but the dormant commerce clause is a very different kettle of fish. What this says, in effect, is we have the commerce clause. Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce uh, with foreign nations, among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And it has been held to have a negative or dormant pregnant uh, associated with it, which is if Congress can so occupy the field in some way, uh, then the states are going to be blocked from doing things, not because there's federal legislation, but because they think the topic is one uh, that should not be regulated by the state. What is the dominant theory of this? Well, early on when this thing started to develop, which is in the aftermath of, say, the Second World War, the constant trope was uh, the dormant commerce clause is designed to preserve competition amongst the several states and to allow this nation to have a national market in goods and services. That doesn't strike me as crazy as an end. In fact, it's something that I believe. The question then is, how do you achieve that? And it's not that the cause is toothless, but as ever, there are kind of variations. And let me start with the simplest one. What you do is you have a local regulation which says that any foreign goods that of a given class that are sold within the state, you have to pay a tax twice of what you have to pay um, if you're a local guy. Or you have a speed limit, which is 60 miles an hour for the in-staters and 50 miles an hour for the out-staters. And what you do is you see a form of explicit uh, discrimination, which transfers wealth from the out-of-staters to the in-staters and probably reduces overall consumer welfare. And so the non-discrimination rule applies. In this particular case, there's no non-discrimination rule that you can invoke because for these purposes, the amount of in-state production of port products is effectively zero. Out-state consumption of them is about 13%. So the issue is, do you simply throw up your hands and say, since there's not an easy non-discrimination test, they can do whatever they want with respect to foreign products? Or do you say, no, what we have to do is to see whether or not the disruption of interstate commerce is disproportionately large relative to the purported in-state interest. And this is a test that is sometimes associated with a case called Pike decided in 1970. That was a case in which you had meat producers, cattle producers. They were in Arizona where the state took place. And the question is how they loaded their cattle onto various trucks and trains. And there was a very nearby station in California where they could do this, or there was a much more distant place inside Arizona where they could do it. And the Justice Stewart for the Supreme Court said, look, you can't force them to travel a country mile. There's no real strong state interest in having them loaded here or there. And there's a real inconvenience on the private side. And so what happens is it's not discrimination between the states. It was a disproportionate burden test, and it applied to an in-state producer. So they gave him protection. These guys are out-of-state producers. And what the argument is, is thus folks in California do not want to have sold in this particular state um, animals that are raised in narrow pens and are that are kept in collective areas. There is a huge battle on the case as to whether or not this is or is not a good health measure. Many people who are against the uh, pork producers say that we have to do this. The pork producers say, frankly, you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to making pork. What you want to do is actually more dangerous than the stuff that we're already doing. Well, do you want to litigate that issue or not? Open question. And so what happens is uh, the pork producers say, look, we're selling this stuff all around the country. And in order for us to comply with what's going on in California, we have to do one of two things, either make every one of our pork production situations comply with California law, thereby raising prices throughout the nation, 
not just in California, or we have to create a new separate line that only serves California, which is prohibitive, or I suppose you could say cut off all California consumption of their own products unless we ship illegally or by some other party. And, you know, these are very unappetizing choices. And so they say, look, you can't do this. Well, what can you do then? And I tend to agree with the pork producers. Uh, the first thing is, of course, uh, you can label pork as being made in uh, bins that do not satisfy the California situation. You only have to put that on stuff that shift to California so they don't disrupt the other markets. And then, as is always the case with these kinds of measures, there are many people in California who support them and many who oppose them. And if you put the notice, each group can line up with its own particular side and you don't disrupt the nature of the interstate commerce. I think that's the right solution. And then there's the other question you always worry about. If this now, what then? They're talking about health conditions for uh, the cattle or the pigs, rather. Now, suppose we say, let's talk about the health conditions for the workers. And somebody says, we believe in California, and they quote the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, that low minimum wages, in effect, uh, create health risks to workers. So we insist uh, that what happens is that the state that wants to ship here has to have a $20 an hour minimum wage, just like we have in California. So there's no discrimination that's taking place. And that they have to comply with other kinds of things, like uh, you meet the ESG, the Environment, Safety, and Governmental Standards that we apply to our corporations. You have to do it as well. And at that particular point, you could regulate every single aspect and every other state can do the other same thing. And they could create inconsistent rules. We refuse to take your pork if what you do is you honor the California minimum wage requirement and it becomes zany. So I think the argument is you always have one sovereign against another and that the correct rule on these things is that each one should stay in its lane, as it were. They could regulate the health and safety conditions in their own plans. What California is always allowed to do is to prove that the stuff that is coming in from these out-of-states do not meet safety standards by looking at the product, not at the form in which it's done. But there's been no evidence whatsoever in this particular case that whatever the methods are used by these pork producers, it has produced the kind of illnesses which have been projected in these kinds of cases. So I think what has to happen is until you can show something really um, visual and certain on these things, uh, the decision should go the other way. I think the Supreme Court took this case because the decision below by Judge Akuta, an excellent judge, uh, was consistent with some of the recent trends. And I actually think uh, that the six at least are going to gut it. But in this case, it seems to me that it has always been the case that pro-competitive stuff in terms of dormant commerce or state v. state regulation has attracted the support of liberal as well as conservative judges. So it could easily be nine nothing. Wow. Well, hey, let's turn to a former Supreme Court nominee and the current Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, because Garland has been getting a lot of heat from his own party with respect to his approach to investigating the January 6th Capitol riots. Now, unsurprisingly, many Democrats had hoped to prosecute former President Trump and his close advisors for what they believed to be his role in what happened. But Garland isn't moving fast enough for their liking, especially with we got midterms coming up and a likely Republican wave. So uh, a few questions for you, Richard, from a non-legal eagle like myself. Um, one, how, how does 
Attorney General Garland's investigation differ and as authority, I suppose, uh, that, uh, compared to the January 6th Select Committee in Congress. Um, what do you think his results will look like compared to theirs? I mean, will he even finish up uh, this before maybe being replaced? And I, I have to ask, can you make any sense of this seven-hour phone call gap that was revealed when White House call logs were sent over from the National Archives um, and uh, Trump's insistence that, you know, he wasn't making calls, never never heard of a burner phone, and uh, I, I don't know where we go from there. Well, let me start with Garland. Um, Garland is not a particular political figure. He was a judge, and you have a very distinct skill set when you're a judge. You have to be able to manage a chambers with four clerks and two secretaries. You then start to go over to the attorney general office. You have no kind of direct experience on this. You may not have a natural feel as an administrator. And so what you're going to do is you're going to be cautious for two reasons. One is you don't want to be caught making embarrassing mistakes. And secondly, it's pretty much the duty of a prosecutor who has a huge amount of um, discretion to examine very carefully what he or she thinks to be the appropriate record and not to move ahead of what you think the evidence is. I can't stress enough how important it is to recognize that a conscientious prosecutor is an enormous safeguard against general kind of abuse. The second thing I would say is on the Trump issue, the Democrats are out for blood. As you well know, I wanted Donald Trump to resign, never to be fired or to be impeached as early as February of 2017. So this is not a brief for him. But I do think it is a matter of exceptional risk to engage in political prosecutions of former people, former presidents, former people in the White House, former advisors, because what comes around can go around. And certainly, if you look at the recent revelations about Hunter Biden and arguably the greater involvement that his father had, you can start running impeachment hearings on that if the Republicans take control. You can start bringing prosecution for all sorts of statements of one kind or another. I do not want to see that stuff happen. I think that Garland actually starts with that. The Democrats, I think, have now developed a very astute habit of eating their own. Christian Cinema, I think, is persona non grata in the Democratic Party. She will surely be primary, and she has been subject to nonstop abuse because of her unwillingness to go along with many of the things that are a part of the Biden political and economic program. And we don't know that Joe Manchin is also amongst the unspeakable. And I think what's happening is the party is now giving Garland the same kind of a treatment. I I think he's right to resist. Now, what do I think he should do and how should he look at the evidence? Well, my view about this situation is that when you're dealing with criminal cases, you start from the immediate actions and only work backwards with a great deal of caution. Proximate cause is the kind of legal term we do for that. So what I want to do before I start going after Trump and his, uh, his rants or his raves, or however you want to describe them, I want to know who was on the site. Was there anybody there who, in fact, decided to urge people to go in? Uh, It turns out I think that there were. I think they're generally identified as Democratic operators. I'm not the professor of facts. Somebody else has to look at that. Uh, But it seems to me that before you went after the president, you'd want to have a very detailed account of who were the immediate ringleaders, the provocateurs on the scene. Um, Some people claim that there are false flag operations. Many people could vehemently deny that. I think the 9-11 Commission 
rather the sixth, the January 6th commission has to examine all that stuff. What troubles me most about this particular commission is it's so one-sided. Uh, they didn't want to take an equal number of Republicans, so they took two Republicans who are visible opponents of Trump and put them on the committee. Uh, so essentially, the presumption given its composition is against any of its findings unless you can show that they're neutral and fair-minded. I haven't seen this. This is, to me, part of a general trend that we have with respect to everything Trump which is the denunciations are absolutely legion. They're emphatic. Everything that's said is stated as the past. There was a terrorist attack and things like that, and nobody's willing to do it. I look back at the charge that uh, Nancy Pelosi wanted to give that committee, and she says it was domestic terrorism. Well, that assumes a conclusion that other people would want to contest, and I think it's terrible. To put the question that way, how did you engage in domestic terrorism as opposed to ask the question in a slightly different fashion? Were the activities of Trump or anybody else involved in the January 6th situation, were they in fact terrorist acts? Were they just criminal trespasses subject to different situations? How long should you detain those people? Who on the inside opened the doors to let people in? And I would like to see a public investigation in which they call witnesses who are hostile to the aims of the commission to see the way in which they can stand up under the particular kind of scrutiny. What we have in the United States today is a very different system. It's a system in which one party just puts its people on. They give a soliloquy. There is no ambiguity. There's no counterplay. And then the other side, in a slightly different form, does exactly the same thing. And ships should not pass in the night if you're worried about this. So I think what happens is Ms. Pelosi should really think again. I think she's been a hopeless partisan. My view about Merrick Garland is he does have flaws. I think he's a weak attorney general in terms of his ability to put his back up and to fight the end game. I just don't think that's the kind of guy that he is. Um, and it turns out when you're attorney general these days, uh, erudition and fair-mindedness are not enough unless you really know how to get down in the mud and to fight with other people on both sides of the spectrum who are out to do you in. That seems to me to be a kind of a failing that he has to have. Uh, what he could do is to try to get a deputy who's a bit more emphatic to take over this situation, which is tricky to do because it's such a big issue. Number twos don't rate. Number ones are the only one that counts. But if I had to figure it out, I think the pressure is only going to intensify upon Garland. I think it's conceivable that he might resign on the grounds that he just can't handle it. I doubt very much that he would be fired by Biden. Uh, but in fact, if you then have to appoint the second person, it's going to slow things down for a while. And what's really happening in this particular case is that in terms of its political balance, I do not think that the January 6th commission or any of its revelations will give a systematic advantage to the Democratic Party. I think there's enough flawed with respect to the process and so many other issues there that are unrelated uh, that it's doubtful that this will uh, attract attention at the level they would hope some 20 months after the entire affair took place. So I also think that the Democrats are playing with fire. But nobody asked me for my opinion, political opinion. I venture them. Uh, and, you know, I th don't think that they're just random predictions, but I don't have a lot of confidence. Why is that, Tom? For the same reason, you never know what's going to happen between now and November 5th. And so even if you can project uh, the 
anticipated arc of the current discussion. Uh, you get some major event that's thrown in there, and everybody has to scramble at a rate which they've never done before, so that it requires everybody to have a little bit of modesty in face of the legal and judicial and political unknowns. Well, one last one I have to ask you about, Richard, is Elon Musk's uh, purchase of a large portion, well, a 9% of, of Twitter getting put on the board. I, I want to know, do you think we're, he can have any material impact into Twitter? Can he improve the, well, negative aspects of Twitter? And are there any other companies you wish Elon would buy his way into and then see if he could change them? Well, look, first of all, when you're talking about boards, you should never think that the only thing they do is make decisions by majority vote. Uh, There is all sorts of other kinds of deliberative activities that start to take place. And if you have somebody in the room who has been a very harsh critic of everything that you have done, you're just not going to be able to talk the same way about him when he's in the room. You're going to have to change the way in which you start to think. You're going to have to start to make some kind of accommodations. And so what happens is there's already a major change inside the company. I also think it's one of amazing importance. One of the things that's so clear is that uh, on the conservative market-oriented side, everybody has said for the last two or three years, the solution to the problem of Twitter and Amazon and Google and all the rest is free entry by conservative statements and party. Well, you look around and there aren't any that have been able to mature. Parler has never come back. Uh, It turns out that in order to put something on, you not only have to have a front-end apparatus, but you have to be able to hook into the infrastructures associated with running the internet. These are controlled by companies like Apple, and if they don't give you the right interfaces, it's going to be very difficult to get yourself there. And so, so long as it turns out that the new entry model is not going to work, and it doesn't seem to have worked, then the issue is whether or not partial new entry through purchases going to work and change the discourse. We don't know by how much, but it has already done that kind of thing. And what happens is next, we don't know. But suppose they now decide that they want to ban uh, Egon Musk from saying what he normally says. And he's basically a member of the board. It's going to be a lot more difficult. Why do they do it? Well, that's hard. The money is always nice, but it doesn't go to the corporation. I suspect it went to the people who sold the shares, may have wanted to diversify. But I think, in effect, that Twitter has realized that it now has a credibility problem. There are so many people who believe things that they regard as disinformation and that it's wearing thin. I mean, in the area that I follow quite closely, it turns out the definition of somebody who's engaged in political information on COVID and similar problems is somebody who has a world-class you know, pedigree, and they're told that everything they supply is misinformation because it doesn't use to the line of the WHO and the CDC. Uh, just to make that statement about the definition of misinformation is preposterous in any serious economy, when you have controversial political organization and professional organization, the last thing you want to do is to say, if you don't toe the line, uh, you're out. So you really want the critics to start coming in and you'd rather them give it. My view is, you know, they cut off Donald Trump. I don't think that was a very wise decision. I think they should put him back on and then other people tweet against him in the way in which it goes. Trump is going to start the 
form his own network. But as best I can tell, it's done very little in the way in which the marketplace works. Even if you're trying to talk about, you know, a small company, it's going to have 25 to 50 million people. Uh, But Twitter and Apple and Google and all those, these people have in the hundreds of millions of followers in one kind or another. And so it's just not a fair contest. So I think, in effect, that the Political argument is being won by the Republicans to say this stuff is all much too one-sided. And to the extent that that perception governs the way you look at this particular move, you'll start to see more people on the conservative side happy with it and people on the liberal side relatively silent. So, you know, the editorial in the Wall Street Journal this morning was pretty emphatic on the way in which this presents an opportunity. I tend to agree with that view, uh, but corporate politics are very complicated and we don't know how long long this will last, and we don't know what other moves or countermeasures are going to be taken. So I would treat it as a healthful sign. But as they say, the first swallow does not a spring make. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, over on Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Catch you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.